Welcome to Class Session 31. I apologize for the slight delay in getting this posted. I had some software issues, which I have now worked around. Today's class focuses on the healing of Theoden and the Battle of Helm's Deep. Okay, so I was debating as to whether or not to go on and talk more about the answer, because I debated talking about this last time. Let me see if I can say in two minutes uh, the objections I have uh, to Peter Jackson's ends. Uh, and... <laughs> The problem, the reason that I think that they don't work, and again, as I said, it's not about lack of authenticity or, or deviation from Tolkien's story. I don't think they work internally. We're being asked to have, the, the, the films ask us to accept the intimate connection that Treebeard has with his land, with his forest, and it spends quite a while uh, inviting us to, to really invest in that. And then makes Treebeard so clueless that he doesn't actually even know that a huge section of his forest has been cut down such that they have to deceive him into walking there and then he gets there and is like, oh, what? Oh, now I'm really angry all of a sudden. I mean, I, and it's just, I just, it just drives me crazy. I mean, I, 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 it, I can't, Talk about suspending disbelief. I mean, I'm like hanging, hang, drawing and quartering disbelief at that point because I can't, if you ask me to believe that I, I can't, I can't, I can't accept that. And the way that they turn, I mean, of course, Gimli is a uh, a serious uh, casualty to comic relief in the films. But like, I can live with that. Um, but the way that Treebeard, the way that the Ents become funny in the films is a way which really undermines them as characters in ways again in which in other parts of the films we're being asked to invest in them. The whole, the way that they take and exaggerate the slowness of the Entmoot. Um, so that it's not just uh, that it takes them a long time to say these things, but that they're actually clueless, you know. And, the, and I mean, it means that they can give some, uh, you know, some some good dramatic speeches uh, to Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd. But uh, but the way that the ants, you know, like they have to try so hard to just like get through to the ants that there's any kind of urgency at all, and then in the end have to simply result to to, to deception again, completely undermines any kind of investment that I'm being asked to do in the Ents as like a, you know, any kind of a rational, sensible, uh, conscious kind of creature. Um, so, as I, I, so I just find, I mean, again, it's not about like, oh, they deviated from the book and therefore it's hateful. There are some ways in which they deviate from the books that I really like, um, I mean, that I think really works very well as a story that they're telling. But that, I, just, I, I find it wholly fails. Um, and... Uh, it just drives me nuts. I did that in about two minutes. Um, but today, I want to go back to, uh, to well, we, I, wa I want to get to Helm's Deep. But first, I want to go back to Theoden um, and the Rohirrim in general. Um, the Rohirrim, of course, are modeled on Anglo-Saxons generally. Their language is explicitly Anglo-Saxon. When we get snatches of the Rohirrim speaking in their own language, um, that language, uh, which, as Legolas says, has a strong music in it. Their language is Anglo-Saxon. The untranslated bits um, of the Rohirrim language in the in the books are just it's just it's just Old English. Um, and of course, Tolkien was uh, you know one of the greatest 20th century scholars of Anglo-Saxon. This was you know one of his great intellectual passions. Um, and so there's. It's a lot of love there. There's a lot of affection uh, with which he treats the Rohirrim. 
Um, of course, the primary difference between the culture of the Rohirrim and the culture of the Anglo-Saxons um, are horses. Uh, th- there weren't really very many horses uh, in England prior to... That's actually why, the primary reason why the Normans won the Norman invasion is that is their cavalry. It was the, 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 the Saxons didn't really have uh, cavalry like that, and they, they couldn't really stand up to it. So that was kind of the decisive uh, factor um, in that particular clash. So the, the, the way that the, uh, the culture of the Rohirrim um, is, is entirely involved uh, with horses is the primary element of sort of sub-creation in that. You know, it's, in other ways, their cultures are very similar. Meduseld is... Exactly like an Anglo-Saxon mead hall. I mean, that is that is um, it, it's it's explicitly modeled um, on the kinds of halls like uh, the Great Hall Heorot, of course, at the beginning of Beowulf that Hrothgar builds for the Danes, uh, much like Medeseld. Um So, and the way that they talk about the hall um, is, is very much uh, very similar to to sort of the hall's place in Anglo-Saxon culture. Um, now, when we get there, we have uh, this problem with Theoden. How is Theoden healed? We do not, of course, get, as in the films, a dramatic exorcism. Uh, nor, and I would, like, I would emphasize this, is it at all clear that an exorcism is required? Um, that is, he's not exactly being possessed. What's wrong with Theoden? What's wrong with him when they get there? The films, of course, make it more... Well, they do what you have to do when you translate a book to film. They make what's wrong with him more visible. They uh, sort of exaggerate the effect of it. Um, We see him, say it in the book, we see him shrunken with age, right? So, of course, in the film, they take that to this sort of the dramatic... You know, a change to his face. He is his actual, actually physically shriveled and wrinkly person who becomes, uh, you know, comparatively studly once he has exercised, right? And 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 much younger appearing. There is a similar kind of change, but it's as I say, much less physical, much less extreme. Uh, in the books, what's wrong with him? In the books, what's wrong with him? How would you describe his problem? Yeah. He seems to me almost depressed, and that warm tongue is just feeding this depression that he's under. Yeah, it's certainly much more like depression than it is like possession, <laughs> certainly. Um, he, you remember what he says when Gandalf invites him to come out and look abroad? When he looks outside? And recall Theoden's comment? He says, it's not so dark here. Right? And again, that's Picking up, Aaron, on what you were saying, it's like depression. He is convinced that everything is dark, that everything is doomed. And he is, one of the things wrong with him, certainly, is that he is crushed by that thought, by what he takes to be that knowledge of the certainty of their doom. And so, you know, his remark there, not so dark, um, is reflective of, you know, he is undergoing the healing process. If? Isn't the phrase of blinded by grief kind of like perfect? It's like like foreshadowed grief. He doesn't even 
it's not so dark there, but he's like, well, everything's going to go to heck no matter what happens. So. Yeah, there's, there's, of course, grief, which is not foreshadowed, but yeah, present right. um, in the death of his only son, Theodred. And actually, here's... Uh, Try to balance out my previous comments. Here's something I actually like that they added to the film. I really like the fact that in the film they add the funeral of Theodred. Um, the death of Theod- the death of the only son of the Lord of the Mark gets a remarkably small amount of play uh, in this story. I mean, we learn that he had this son. And he doesn't talk about it that much. Wormtongue mentions it um, in, in, in one of his early speeches to Theoden, but it doesn't get a lot of emphasis. That's clearly part of what's going on. Obviously, the problem with Theoden predates the death of Theoden. This is not just a reaction to Theodred's death, but Theodred's death is certainly contributing to it uh, in some way. So there is a very real grief. His only son has died. Um, and again, I, 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 I love the scene in the film when we see Theoden weeping by the tomb of his son. I think that that's, that is certainly sort of an implied element uh, to the book, but Tolkien doesn't spend much time on that. Um, and I, I thought that was a re- the, that was a really good thing. See, I like to compliment the movies too. It's not just, but it's so much easier to spend time talking about the things that I don't like about them. So anyway, I want to throw it a bone every once in a while. Marta, um, I think with this this part where Theoden is revived, I think it's easy to just blame Young Tom for the whole thing. But I think it's part of Theoden's personality a little bit too, because in Helm's Deep, he's like, "Oh, we're trapped. It's over. We're done." And Aragorn's like, "No, we can do this." And he's like, "Well, maybe we can." <laughs> Up, but he's quick to give over to the world, I think. So I think Wormtongue just exacerbates that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. He is, he is tempted. Um, as he says to Gandalf, uh, in the darkness before the dawn, I doubted. Right. Um, he, is, he is given to doubt. And I, I agree with you. That moment does seem to suggest um, what Wormtongue did to him was not just, you know, I am casting or facilitating a spell upon you from outside, um, but I am playing on this tendency that you already have. I am playing upon your own beliefs. I am playing upon your own doubts. One thing which is important here, the word spell um, is almost, it, it, it is used a couple times, but not very often in the sense of a magic spell. Um, sometimes, but not often. Uh, but of course, when Tolkien thinks of the word spell, he is thinking of what that, where that word comes from and what it meant in Anglo-Saxon. It's actually used in its Anglo-Saxon sense. Wormtongue uses it. Remember the name he gives to Gandalf? He calls him Lothspell, which means, he translates it, what does it mean? Ill news. And ill news is an ill guest. What is the opposite of Lothspell? Yes, yes, gold spell, gospel, gospel. That's what the word gospel means. It's the good news, the gold spell, right? So spell, as, and, and Tolkien pointed this out in On Fairy Stories, you may or may not remember, the word spell means in English both a magical incantation and also a verbal expression, right? News, tidings, a saying, right? Um, does worm tongue cast a spell on Theoden? Well, yes and no. Not necessarily in the sense of a magical incantation, but his words do affect him. He is, 
in this sort of etymologically literal sense under Wormtongue's spell, right? That is under his words. And Wormtongue is, his words are acting upon Theoden's mind and Theoden's own beliefs and Theoden's own outlooks. Does anyone recall the image, the visual image that Theoden uses to describe his state after the fact when he's looking back on it? This is when they meet, when the, the host is ridden out and they meet the warrior uh, who's, who's retreating and who tells them to run away. Um, you know, he, he's calling, he's like, is Amir here? Because, of course, he doesn't even suspect that Theoden is riding with the host. Right? And Theoden kind of holds back and holds back and then comes forward. Does anyone recall this? I cunningly didn't write down the page number, so let's see if I can find it. Page 515. Keorl is the guy's name. He says at the bottom of the page, Pardon me, I thought, you thought I remained in Metaseld like a bent old tree under winter snow. So it was when you rode to war. He compares himself to a bent old tree under, <coughs> under winter snow. This implies that he is being act on, acted on by an external force. But the force is not necessarily like, it's not like he's being held down or crushed by something else by the snow of winter. And what has happened? A west wind has shaken the boughs. And now the tree has come upright again. So again, even that image, I, I know this happened to the trees in my backyard this winter, uh, and I still have some of them tied up uh, to try to straighten them again after the weight of winter snow that they, were, that they were under, which I think is an interesting aspect of this image. When an old tree is bent by winter snow, and a west wind shakes the boughs, it pops back up again, but not all the way up, right? And as Theoden reminds them, you know, my, my, my age and weakness was not all of Wormtongue's creating. I, I am actually old, uh, and I'm not as strong <laughs> as I used to be. Um, so again, it's what happened to him was in part natural or like natural forces, but augmented, manipulated, amplified, by Wormtongue's words, by his, by his spell, in that sense. Um, how was he healed? What is his healing process like? Again, this is, this is in the books, definitely not a, a, a struggle of wizard power between Gandalf and Saruman, as it is in the films. What is the healing process like? How is he healed? What does Gandalf do to him? He, Theoden, refers to it as healing? I mean, it's not like that's an inappropriate expression to use of it. Marta? I think Gandalf kind of imparts the will to get up, essentially, on Theoden. And I think it's when Theoden opens the doors and looks out if that's what he's healed. Yeah, he just invites Theoden to stand up, stop leaning on his cane, come out and look abroad. And then he looks abroad and says, it's not so dark. And then says, where's your sword? Your hands would remember their old strength better if they grasped a sword hilt. And Theoden goes for a sword and finds it's not there. Oh, yeah, gave it to Wormtongue to keep for me. Right? Um, There's a connection, it seems. 
this scene always makes me think of a the old medieval idea of the connection between the king and the land. Um, the land is suffering. Um, it's not literally like gripped by winter while Fahidin is is under this influence. But he, when he looks out and sees, the land is is not as dark as he thought it was. Just seeing that, just knowing that, just being among his people and out in his land gives him strength. Fighting for his land, which is in this, in the old medieval sense of kingship and what kings did, uh, a king to fight for his land against invaders is one of the most sacred duties of kingship. That was kind of the point of kings. Um, And so it is appropriate that he regains his strength when he is once again doing doing his thing, the thing which is his, his duty as king, which is to take his sword and to ride forth to battle in defense of his, of his kingdom. Yeah, Brendan? It kind of like reminded me of seasonal affective disorder. It's <laughs> so dark in the hall. And then he goes outside and decides, like, oh, I'm feeling better. <laughs> Extreme seasonal affective disorder. Theoden has. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is like that. I mean, that's, that's, it's almost like the atmosphere. G- Gandalf, it is not clear that Gandalf has done much of anything magical here. Um, what he has done, though, ha- is breaking Wormtongue's spell, stopping him saying the things that he said, the, the sort of the, all of the mental pictures, apparently, that he has gotten Theoden to invest in, the ways that he's gotten him to understand himself and his kingdom and their situation coupled with the physical surroundings, right? In this dark hall, which even the fact that this hall was as dark as it was, is itself a representation of the situation. What is this place called, Middeseld? The Golden Hall. The Golden Hall. It's a place of light. It's supposed to be a place of light. So the fact that it's cloaked in darkness um, is both symptom uh, and, uh, as you suggest, almost like cause. Anyway, it's intimately connected with his own darkness. Um, and the darkness of his outlook and his situation there. Um, what do you notice about the relationship between Thad and, and his people? This connection is an even more intimate one than between the king and his land. How do people react to Theoden? After he's healed, what is the most likely thing that a warrior of the Rohirrim is likely to say when they meet him? Guards say it, Aemir says it, Kaoral says it. They all say, command us. That's the guard's response. They kneel down and say, command us. Amir comes in to lay his sword at Theoden's feet. That's Kaoral's response there on 515. Come stand before me, Kaoral. I am here. The last host of the Aerolingas has ridden forth. That's the... Anglo-Saxon pluralization, by the way, the A-S ending is how you make that kind of noun plural in Anglo-Saxon. I will not return without battle. The man's face lightened with joy and wonder. He drew himself up. Then he knelt, offering his notched sword to the king. Command me, Lord, he cried, and pardon me. Carol is the perfect illustration of what happens. What did he come in with? Bad news. I mean, yeah, he... Is Amir here? You come at last, but too late and with too little strength. Things have gone evilly since Theodred fell. 
And he's saying, we were driven back, we've lost, we're running, we were overmastered, the shield wall is broken. The rest are scattered. Where is Aemir? Tell him there is no hope ahead. He should return to Edoras before the wolves of Isengard come there. And then Theoden just steps forward and says, I am here. The last host of the Rohirrim is ridden forth. <coughs> one reaction to that, it would seem, one purely, coldly rational response to that would be, the situation has not changed much. Okay, you still have too little strength. A- admittedly, you also have that same strength plus one really old guy. That's a very little bit better than I thought it was at first. But let's face it, I don't think one 80-year-old guy is going to turn the tide here. I mean, honestly, from a purely rational standpoint, it would seem that, that this, of course, is, is, is worlds away from Kaoral's response. To Kaoral, this makes all the difference. The Lord of the Mark rides forth. Okay, let's go. And not just, all right, I still think this is going to suck, but I'll go along because he's king. That's not that. I mean, his attitude completely changes. He's ready. Now there's hope. There's hope of victory because the king is there. Even the enemies feel this. When Theoden charges out at dawn, at the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep, uh, the enemy is spooked by the forest which has appeared uh, in, in the Teeping Coombe behind them. Um, and they're afraid of the trees, which appear to be magical. Um, but then Theoden charges out with a comparatively small contingent of soldiers, though not nearly so small as the contingent is in the films. Um, they have several thousand people, not <laughs> several dozen people as they do in the films. Um, again, make it more visible, exaggerate it. That's how you do it in film. But anyway... <laughs> When he comes charging out, there's that, that, that very poignant phrase where you, you have the, the enemy running away in route, and then they're poised. They, they've been running away as Theoden is charged uh, from the Hornburg. And they stand there in terror of the king and in terror of the trees. Right? And it, it's, like, it's not in terror of the oncoming horsemen, in terror of the king. The Lord of the Mark is riding forth. There is some, that means more, certainly means more than one probably reasonably decrepit 80-year-old guy on horseback. <laughs> but it's, it's more even than just, than just another warrior. I mean, it's not... It's, of course, Aragorn single-handedly is like a reasonably good upgrade to the army, but Theoden is a greater upgrade to, to the army. The land is healed. The, the people's problems are, again... It doesn't seem like they would be solved. Not much has actually changed. When he comes out, they still have the same issues uh, with Saruman's army, and that seems still as hopeless as ever. Um, you know, Theoden, Theodred is still dead. The other armies are still scattered. But the impact it has on the people is really profound. Command us. The love that they have for the king and how the impact that his leadership has on them. There is something that one is tempted to call almost magical about that. And there I use the word magical in the deliberately vague kind of elven way. Um, You know, again, one could imagine, uh, like Goadriel speaking to Sam, your people might call this magic. I don't know quite what you mean by that. 
there is real power. There is, real, there is a real effect to this, and it's not just a raising of morale. One uh, brief note, which those of you who uh, have read some Arthurian literature will probably particularly appreciate on page 513 that the, the, the business with uh, Amir Gimli uh, and the matter of the fairness of ladies. Uh, at the top of 513, Amir approaches Gimli. I have not had time to learn gentle speech under your rod as you promised, but shall we not put aside our quarrel? At least I will speak no evil again of the Lady of the Wood. I will forget my wrath for a while, Aemir, son of Aemond, but if ever you chance to see the Lady Galadriel with your eyes, then you shall acknowledge her the fairest of ladies or our friendship will end. I mean, it sounds like we're next to a well in the woods in Mallory somewhere. I mean, it really does. Remember this because there's going to be another moment between... Watch for the next time Aemir and Gimli bring up this topic of conversation. It will happen again in The Return of the King. And that will be an even more fun uh, Arthurian moment. Um, so be on the lookout for that one. It'll be worth it. What interested you most about the Battle of Helm's Deep? I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of awesome. I mean, like, certainly, I mean, as a... As a child, when I read The Lord of the Rings first, Battle of Helm's Deep was always my favorite chapter in the entire work. Um, but what did you think? What did you notice? Rachel? I like the best when Halder showed up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you are baiting me. Uh, <laughs> I like that part in the films. So there. <laughs> the badgers show up. Or <laughs> they have badgers instead of elves. <laughs> Tony? <laughs> when, uh, when Aragorn just sort of, I'm going to go talk to the Urukai now. Yes. Like, hey, you guys are going to die, so you should leave. And they just have this little conversation. Yes. And I, it's weird because, you know, you see the, the film, the Urukai is giant, monstrous-looking badasses. Yeah. And the way they're talking, it sounds like little children, like, jumping up and down. We're the fighting Urukai. We're the fighting Urukai. <laughs> <laughs> and then they shoot at him and he jumps off and runs away. Yeah, yeah. I think that scene where Aragorn is addressing the army of Isengard uh, above the gate is the first place I would point to to try to explain what I think is the most important difference between the film, the films and the books. Um, Aragorn, and this is sheer, like the sheer magnitude and heroism of it. Um, Tolkien's characters are like archetypally heroic. In the films they go way far out of their way to make everybody sort of, you know, the audience able to relate to them. Like, they're all torn, and Aragorn's like, oh, gosh, I don't really know if I should be king. And I'm like, come on. (laughs) 
Aragorn doesn't have any doubts about whether or not he should be a king. That was the part when I, again, my memory of seeing Fellowship of the Ring in the theaters, I was so deeply puzzled. Uh, <laughs> the first time Aragorn started talking that way, I'm like, what on earth is going on? Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that passage, it's on 527. I mean, the bottom of the page. I have still this to say, answered Aragorn. No enemy has yet taken the Hornburg. Depart or not one of you will be spared. Not one will be left alive to take back tidings to the north. You do not know your peril. They're about to lose. I mean, the enemy has like knocked in all of the walls. They're surrounded. There are very few of them and thousands and thousands of the enemy. And like he comes out. And he holds up his hand to Parley and they stop to listen because they're all under the the very plausible impression that he's going to surrender because they've obviously lost. And instead he says, depart or not one of you will be spared. Not one will be left alive. It it it, It is amazing. But notice the response. So great a power and royalty was revealed in Aragorn as he stood there alone above the ruined gates before the host of his enemies that many of the wild men paused and looked back over their shoulders to the valley and some looked up doubtfully at the sky. Looked up doubtfully at the sky. Like they actually were like, like you know, I don't know what they're looking for, lightning bolts or something. <laughs> but it is so impressive that they really think we're going to get stricken down right here. I mean, they're all looking around like, oh my gosh, it's, we're, we're, we're about to die from this guy standing there in front of our enormous army, which is about to bust through. Um, the orcs are having none of it, and they laugh and, and, uh, and, and shoot at him. But, of course, when they look around, this is when they see the trees for the first time. Um, and it's right after this that, the, that the, the, the horn of Helm sounds and resounds in the deep, and then Theoden comes charging out. So it's... It's a phenomenal moment, but again, there, that such so great a power in royalty was revealed in Aragorn. Remember, we talked before about Gandalf sort of declaring his power. Uh, you know that, that that little teaser that we get of it with Bilbo in ch- way back in chapter one, right? When when he when he sort of threatens to show Gandalf the gray uncloaked, and we, we see you know, he sort of stops holding in his power a little bit there, and fully on the bridge of Khazad-dûm with the Balrog when he declares himself and who he is and his power. Um, here, we have Aragorn doing that, and he's done it before. Remember, he did this when they were, when they were riding in the boat through the, uh, the Argonath, um, and... Frodo and Sam are cowering in the boat, and you hear this strange voice say, Fear not, from the back of the boat, and they look back, and Strider's not there. Instead, it is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, you know, looking very kingly and royal. He, is, he reveals himself there, um, and that's what he's doing here. And when he does, it is really potent. Um, so, I mean, this is a remarkable moment. Uh, an amazing moment, I think. Marta? Um, I guess it's not quite as remarkable, but I like the, the Gimli Legolas tally. It's <laughs> 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 actually right after the battle when Legolas admits his defeat and he says, um, you have passed my score by one, but I do not grudge you the game. So glad I am seeing on your own legs. And it's just nice. Yes. Yes, and Legolas is all worried when, when, when Gimli has run. Uh, has, has, I mean, there's this, there's this great moment where he says, Oh, I'm so sorry to find that. You know, I've separated from Gimli, and I don't know where he is. And they're like, oh, it's okay. I think he retreated up towards the caves. And 
Legolas was like, no, I wanted to tell him that <laughs> how many my score was. It's like he's not worried that he's dead. He just wants to, wants to continue the competition. Uh, uh, reminds me of the, this, this other line when, um, when they meet Merry and Pippin again, and Gimli like, busts out and starts insulting them. Right, you know, you're, hammer and tongs. I'm so torn between rage and joy, and you know, and and, and the response of Theoden to hearing uh, Gimli unleash these insults at Merry and Pippin says, "It cannot be doubted that we are that we see the reunion of dear friends." I'm like, wait, well, because of the abuse they heap on each other, you can tell that they're dear friends. But you can see sort of an element of of that kind of camaraderie with Legolas and Gimli, and I think it's. Uh, uh, it is really nice. I mean, it's, that's something we haven't talked about. I've, I've been glad to see uh, that there's been much more discussion of this on the forum than we've been having in class, certainly, because I think it's very appropriate, the question of the relationships among uh, the Fellowship and the way that Tolkien uses the Fellowship as sort of an illustration of the kinds of relationships that can form even between people like dwarves and elves who, are, who have been who have traditionally had frosty relationships. So uh, that, I think, is, is a really important element to the story. And so I, I, I agree. That's a really fun part of the Battle of Helm's Deep. Yeah. Another comparison to the movie is that I like that Gandalf doesn't say when he's coming back. He just says he will. And then it's in the movie, they're like, he's like, I'm coming back at dawn, pretty much. But then I love, because I love the part at the end where Amor says, once more you come in the hour of need, unlooked for. And Gandalf says, unlooked for? Well, I said I would return and meet you here. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm on time. Why weren't you looking for me? What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, of course, how, how amused Gandalf is when they all think that the forest is the result of his... Mm-hmm. Wizardry, you know, you're mighty in wizardry, and he says, uh, maybe, but uh, <laughs> haven't done anything actually. Yeah. Elise, um, I think like one of the things that impressed me most about the chapter was from a writing standpoint about how Tolkien like tackled this huge epic battle. I mean, the chapter is like pretty short when you think about it. He like jumped from different place to place, and there's so many things going on, but you still get the like full effect of it. Just the way that he wrote it, I think, was amazing. It's so hard to do. I agree. I think the pacing of this chapter is is pretty incredible. Um, he doesn't get caught up in yes, a blow by blow account. We don't get the like, and then Legolas jumped on the shield and did this. Like, yeah, yeah, we don't we don't get any of that kind of. I mean, the closest we get to that um, are uh, the, the, we don't get none of that. Right, um, we do come close to the action a couple times, like the sortie to the gates and uh, and and Gimli rising up and saving Aemir's life, um, and uh, and and Aragorn's as they're coming back. Um, so we get a little bit, but he does a really good job of sort of showing uh, the 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 scope of it, but also sort of the detail of its sequence. I agree. It's 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 the kind of thing where. It, if you really think about trying to do that, uh, it is it is really impressive. It's really impressive, Nick. In another like movie book comparison, I feel like uh, like Theoden is sort of less depressed at the end of Helm's Deep in the book. Like in the movie, he's like, ah, oh, broken. And then everyone's like, no, let's die gloriously, like, charge out and kill them. And he's like, yeah, but in the book, everyone comes back. He's like, what are we gonna do? And Theoden. He just says he's going to die gloriously by charging out. Yeah, like without him sort of dropping. Yeah, he he 
he doubts, and then Aragorn has the one little word for him. But yeah, he, um, he talks about that line, which I was glad that they kept in the film, of making such an end as will be worth a song. Um, but yeah, I agree. He is, uh, he is much more... Because again, it's, it's, part, it's what we have seen with Theoden all along since his healing. Now, he is, he is, by being healed, he is being king again. And of course, it is being king again that healed him, right? Um, and that's, that's, what, that's what the king should do. Um, you notice the emphasis also by the Dunlendings. Send out your king. Uh, send out your skulking king. Uh, we'll, we'll, we will, we, you know, we'll, we'll pull him from his hole if he doesn't come. You know, like he's, uh, and he compares himself to an old badger caught in a trap, right? He won't be that kind of king. And, and you're right, he decides he's not going to be that kind of king. Um, yeah, good. Brittany? Um, it's not at home, Steve, but I like when Theoden, sorry, when he's trying to decide who to leave at Edirance, there's nobody, Aaron, there's no one else in the family, and somebody's like, Aaron. He's like, oh yeah, perfect. <laughs> I forgot that there were also women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is important, it is interesting that that comes from the people. Um, what are the reasons given for why Eowyn should be left in command? Well, one, she is of the house of Aeorl, right? She is, she is from, she is a descendant of Aeorl the Young. She is in the royal house. That's the first qualification. That's, you know, the problem. There's nobody else in the house of Aeorl to leave. It's just me and Aemir. They're the only ones left. And Aemir has to come. Right. I didn't say Aemir, and he isn't the last. Oh, right. Good. She is fearless, high-hearted, and all love her. Three interesting qualifications. Interesting both in the sense of those being put forward as qualifications for leadership, and also interesting in showing us what they think of her and what they value in her? Yeah, Marta? Um, I know that we've been doing throwbacks during yeah. the semester, and Eowyn kind of reminds me, and I'm not going to remember the names of the lady, but there's a woman who took charge of one of the... Aleph, yeah. Yeah, Eowyn reminds me of that. That woman reminds me of that. Yeah, and... She took over, Haleth took over when her father and brother were both killed, um, which is exactly when Eowyn would be taking over. Uh, you know, if Theoden and Eomir both die in this battle, as seems very likely to everybody when they set out, she would become the leader just in exactly the same circumstances. I mean, Theoden isn't her dad, but um, he sort of accepts both, uh, both Eomir and... Uh, Ammon was the father, Amir and Eowyn, um, who are the, the sons of his sister. Um, his, and, and, you know, we'd learn in the appendices, this was a younger sister whom he loved very much and who died young. And so he has, from a long time ago, sort of semi-pseudo-adopted them, or, you know, treated them as his own children, <laughs> um, even though they're his niece and nephew. Um, so, yeah, the parallel there is pretty striking. Um, and she certainly... The three things that are said of her certainly were true of Haleth in the Silmarillion. 
um, fearless, high-hearted, and the people love her. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a that's that's a very important echo. We'll talk about Eowyn more uh, later on. What else are we invited to think about Eowyn here, though? And it's an interesting build-up that we get to it. Um, not just her bringing the cup over to him and and uh, make you know saying suggestive things, uh, <laughs> but the way the narrator treats it. Um, she turns to leave during their the first encounter with Theoden, and the narrator breaks in with. Thus it was, for the first time in the full light of day, Aragorn beheld Eowyn. I was like, whoa. <laughs> okay, so I guess that's an important moment. I mean, it sounds like, like, you know, enter the romantic lead. It's, it's, it's like the, 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 the narrative cue that we're given there, um, which is interesting, <laughs> which, is, which is very interesting. And it will turn out, I mean, he's using this, in some ways, almost deliberately misleadingly, um, there is no evidence that Aragorn even briefly entertains the idea of of leaving Arwen for Eowyn here. Um, his response to her when she comes over, uh, you know, and offers him the is, is he's kind, but he's doesn't really seem tempted. Um, but it is interesting that we're given that cue. At the beginning, more on that later. But but I, I, I did want to mention that because um, it's a it's a kind of a dramatic way that that the narrator brings that in. Um, I want to mention at least uh, Gimli and his love affair for the caves. Um, <laughs> this I think is a really important moment because it's it's an important little reminder. Um, we might be tempted from way back in the Silmarillion to think of, you know, elves as the defender of nature, the, you know, defenders of nature, defenders and supporters of nature, and dwarves as, you know, in some sense, anti-nature. Remember, that was the deal, that was the, the friction between Aule and Yavanna way back when Aule made the dwarves. And Yavanna predicts, since Aule concealed his design of creating the dwarves from her, that there would be no love between the, you know, his children and her children, in other words, between dwarves and growing things. So we might be tempted from that initial prompt onwards to see dwarves as not caring about nature at all. And what we're reminded of here in this passage is that there's more to nature than trees and flowers and woods and fields, um, dwarves aren't anti-nature. Um, we do get anti-nature in this section. Who is anti-nature? Yes, Saruman is the anti-nature perspective. The mind of metal and wheels, that's the anti-nature perspective. Um, the just exploit natural things for your own end and don't care about them at all for their own sake. Feel free to destroy them, break them, mess with them. That's not at all how the dwarves feel. And his, uh, Gimli's description, his loving description, it, it, the way that he 
compares the stone uh, to gardens and to trees. Um, Notice even Legolas doesn't understand this. It's not just us, the reader, that might forget this, but the other characters don't understand this. Um, Legolas keeps saying, keeps assuming that Gimli's interest in the caves is as a miner or a smith. Like, oh, man, the ore we could get from this place. And so he says, oh, you know, uh, a busy family of dwarves might mar more than they made. Right? Maybe the men are wise to keep this a secret. And he immediately, he, Gimli, immediately brings it back to Legolas and says, no, 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 you, you don't understand. But you should understand. Do you cut down flowering groves of tree for, trees for firewood? Well, your relationship with trees and growing things is the same as my relationship with stone. We would tend these flowering groves of stone, right? Um, not quarry them. It's an, it's a, an important little glimpse. Um, hey, you know, rocks are, rocks are nature too. Uh, and, and Gimli, for one, remembers that. And we can see other references, other things that Gimli says should also be, have been helping to remind us of this. Even when he's saying things like, you know, this land has tough bones. There's good rock here. I felt it in my feet as we were approaching, right? He, he's, he is in touch with the rock and the ground uh, in ways which are very similar to how Legolas is in touch with the trees. Uh, and the, the, remember, Legolas talks in a very similar way when they're in Holland before they cross the Misty Mountains. And he's, he, you know, sort of says what he can hear the beasts and the trees and the plants saying as they're going through. Uh, Gimli has a similar, it seems, kind of communion with stone. Now, Legolas mentions what the stones say too there. He is not completely oblivious to stone, but he clearly assumes that Gimli's experience is going to be very different. I was going to ask about Merry and Pippin at Isengard, but I think we'll have to save that for next time. We'll do Isengard... Isengard the Palantir, and then if we're very fortunate, we'll get so far as the taming of Smeagol next time. So, See you on Friday. Okay, the next class will cover the last two chapters of Book 3, The Voice of Saruman and the Palantir, and start moving into Chapter 1 of Book 4, The Taming of Smeagol. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.